When you're lost in the darkness, look for the pod. Specifically, the Prestige TV podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network, where we're breaking down every new episode of HBO's The Last of Us. On Sunday nights, grab your battery and join Van Lathan and Charles Holmes for an instant reaction to the latest episode. Then head back to the QZ on Tuesdays for a deep dive with Joanna Robinson and Mallory Rubin. From character arcs to video game adaptation choices, story themes to needle drops, we'll parse every inch of this cordyceps-coated universe. Watch out for mouth tendrils and follow along on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White, Ayo Adebri, and Eben Moss Backrack. Season two follows as the crew work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Thursday, February 16th. In the late 2010s and mostly through the pandemic, it was boom times for Hollywood's M&A dealmakers. In addition to the consolidation and IPOs going on across the business, Disney buying most of Fox, the Endeavor talent firm with UFC went public, SPAC after SPAC after SPAC, most of which ended up going nowhere. Tons of money came into the industry in the form of private equity investments and other deals. Companies like A24, the film distributor Neon, LeBron, Spring Hill Entertainment, they all cashed in. There was a wave of big ticket podcast company sales, including this very platform, The Ringer. Candle Media, a company started by two former Disney executives with a couple billion dollars of Blackstone's money, started throwing cash at production companies like the owner of Cocomelon and Will Smith's Westbrook, even though that was pre-slap. It culminated in the purchase of Reese Witherspoon's Hello Sunshine Company at a reported valuation of $900 million, though there were some caveats on that number. You don't hear about deals like that very much these days. Higher interest rates, the pullback in advertising, the Biden administration's antitrust crackdown, the great Netflix correction in the stock market, all the stuff we've talked about on the show has contributed to an impact on the deal market. In fact, for the deal landscape in 2023, it's pretty much a buyer's market. But deals are still getting done in media and entertainment, and that's what we're talking about today, M&A. I've got Sarah Fisher on the show. She's a senior media reporter at Axios and writes the Media Trends newsletter. She's also an analyst at CNN. She breaks a lot of news on media and entertainment deals. I wanted to know where she sees the market going, what companies she's watching for possible sales or acquisitions, who's in trouble, and what it all means for the entertainment economy as a whole. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Sarah Fisher. Sarah is the senior media reporter at Axios and a media analyst for CNN. We're going to be talking about the deal market right now. Welcome, first of all. Thank you, Matt. I should say we are recording at a kind of 
empty conference room at the DCN Next Summit, which is a media conference in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which we've been at the last couple of days. Sarah has done an amazing job moderating panels. I did one this morning with Richard Plepler from HBO and now an Apple producer. Um, and it got me thinking about the whole deal market right now for media companies. We're in a little bit of a weird time because we've had this boom for the past five to seven years. So much investment coming into the industry, consolidation, IPOs, SPACs, the whole thing. And now we're in a little bit of a weird time. I mean, we were talking yesterday and you called it a buyer's market. Why do you call it a buyer's market right now in media? Because I think a lot of companies, Matt, raised money at super high valuations a few years ago. And now they're trying to cash out at valuations that buyers are not going to pay for. They have the leverage here. The market is clearly looking for companies that can show a path to profit, if not are profitable. And so a lot of these firms, you know, I think about the digital media companies, the vices of the world, the voxes of the world, some of the production companies, the tastemates of the world that, you know, are struggling to show how profitable they can be. It's going to be really hard for them to get the number that they're looking for to exit. Yeah, you're talking about mostly these digital media companies that came up in the 2010s uh, on the ad model, where they said, okay, if we can get scale, we can attach ourselves to social media, places like BuzzFeed, Vice, we can get, you know, these massive uh, groups of, of readers, and we can monetize that. And I think what we've seen over the past couple of years is that that is not the case <laughs> in a lot of these companies. I mean, Vice is just a disaster. I mean, I saw that they are now missing payments and they had a, you know emergency loan that they just got. I mean, that, where do you see Vice ending up? I see Vice selling itself in pieces. I think it would be really hard at this point for them to sell to one buyer for the number that they're looking for. I also think the assets, some of them are just not worth as much as others. I mean, the global production studio, that's interesting for companies that are looking to produce content. You know, some of the uh, studio work that they do with Virtue, which is kind of like ad marketing agency stuff, is good. Are the digital websites worth much? Is Refinery29 worth that much anymore? I doubt it. But broadly speaking, this uh, notion kind of applies to Hollywood too. You know, a lot yeah, of- Let's talk about that because the Hollywood stuff obviously is what we're interested in on this show. And we've seen a lot of investment in traditional companies, you know, individual production companies like Reese Witherspoon's company, Will Smith's company, um, a lot of big ticket deals like A24, where they got a huge investment at a $2.5 billion valuation. Um, a lot of that stuff is premised on, I think, growth that may not be happening now. And this, these were pre-Netflix correction deals. So is there a pullback or are we just kind of looking at a more rational market? We're definitely looking at a more rational market that in turn, I think, is going to be more cautious about their investments. You're right. In 2022, we had a plethora of private investment companies coming in and taking these minority stakes in production companies. So you mentioned a few, A24, Legendary, LeBron, Spring Hill, Kevin Hart's Heartbeat. I think you'll see some of that continue. We saw this morning that Boardwalk took a minority stake. Um, sorry, Shamrock Capital took a minority stake in Boardwalk. Yeah, Boardwalk is a 
documentary producer that makes shows like Cheer and Chef's Table and some other shows. And that's an interesting one because it shows the growth in the documentary film world over the past few years. It's such a boom time, as we've discussed on the show. And this is private equity paying attention and wanting to get in on that deal. And I think we'll probably see more of those deals, right? I think we will. And you know, on the doc side, one area where there's a ton of momentum is sports docs. And that's why I think some of these athlete-led production companies are going to continue to do pretty well. Religion of Sports, which is the Michael Strahan, Tom Brady company. Is it Deep, Deepak Chopra? Isn't that his? Yeah, they have raised uh, another round last year, $50 million. Obviously, we just noted LeBron Spring Hill taking that minority investment. Although they just did layoffs. I think it's hard because some of these companies saw the boom times. They raised a bunch of money, and now they're reckoning with that. I've reported, House Party. House Party oh did not God. do it for Spring Hill. No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, I've reported that you know Peter Churin's uh, group is eyeing an investment in Omaha Productions, which is Peyton Manning's production company. So I think there's going to continue to be momentum Manning cast there. everywhere. Although they do more than just the Manning cast, actually. They do a lot more. They do stuff on YouTube. They do a lot of stuff that's actually not even sports-related. Like, they have a show on History Channel. But those— those docs do well for sports. They do well for what Boardwalk did because streamers at one point were really into news. In the Trump era, I mean, I'm from Axios. We do a lot of political coverage. We were getting calls left and right about people that wanted to take our HBO show and do things with it. I think now there's a lot less of an appetite. People are sick of polarization. And so, but they still want to learn. And so docs have become the the hot thing. And I think there will be more momentum there. But for companies like the ones who we had just mentioned, the Voxes and the Vices of the world that were really dependent on revenue from licensing shows, that's going to be a tougher sell now. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about Candle Media, which was the talk of Hollywood in 2021 into 2022, because they have this model where they have a bunch of money from Blackstone. They have billions of dollars from Blackstone, the private equity group, and Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs are Disney guys. Their thesis is we will buy up a bunch of companies. We will roll them into one and either get a big investment or take the thing public. And that was premised, I think, on a lot of this cheap money and low interest rates. And I'm not so sure that that model is going to bear out. You know, the Reese Witherspoon deal, which everybody talked about, 900 million, which is not really 900 million, but the West, uh, the Will Smith, uh, they invested in his company pre-slap. Um, Coco Melon's owner, Moonbug, is now in their fold. Um, what do you think, you know, we haven't seen them announce anything lately. Where do you think they are and what's going to be the future for that kind of, that company? Such a good question. And they're so hotly debated in Hollywood and mm. everyone's eyeing what they're doing. They've made 10 acquisitions so far. They're a little under 18 months old. I'll tell you this from sources inside the company. They definitely want to be a public company. They want to IPO. They know because of the market conditions that you just said that it's not going to happen this year. If someone were to come in and offer them something great between now and then, it's not that they wouldn't look at it, but they are anticipating being a public company. And an important thing to know about them, they want to be an operator. They don't want to be structured the way that IAC is structured under That's Barry, Barry Diller. Diller's company. They don't want to have these separate subsidiaries that they can spin out individually like Barry did with Match Group and Vimeo. They want to have operating synergy across all of the things that they acquire. The challenge is, as you know, they don't fully own everything. They acquired Moonbug, the Cocomelon parent for $3 billion. They've acquired some small digital sites like Attention. They acquired Isaac Lee's Exile content. But a lot of the stuff 
that they have invested in is minority stakes. So how do you create synergies across things you don't fully own is a question. But I think one- Reese, have Reese show up just everywhere. <laughs> Pop up in every every possible venue. That's definitely something you're going to see them leverage, that big brand name. But I think the strategy shift for them is not just being this major production house, because to your point, the streaming demand is going down. What they want to do is take communities, so YouTube channels, that's why Coco Melon is so hot, and monetize them through things like commerce. I think that's going to be the big shift. And it's companies like Candle, companies like Spotter, who are seeing these big- What's Spotter? I don't know that one. Spotter is a massive juggernaut. They essentially help YouTube stars monetize. Oh, right. Yes, I've heard of them. Those types of companies are the ones that I think are going to do well. But for Candle, they just have to make sure that- they're focusing on that side of the house, not just being this, you know, independent arms dealer for production, because like we just said, it's the streaming demand isn't going down, but the amount of money that they can spend to just throw at shows is going to go down. I think Candle would love it if Disney came in and said, let's buy you and bring Stags and uh, Kevin Mayer into the company as potential CEOs. I mean, both those guys were up for the CEO job at Disney and were heir apparents at one point, and then both of them kind of flamed out or were were purged from the company or left on their own. And uh, Coco Melon's a big property, number one show for kids on Netflix and on YouTube. Um, there's a lot of value to Disney there. So much value to Disney there, but I think you still have some personality problems there. I think there's still some bitter feelings whenever I talk to people in Hollywood about it. One of the questions is, you know, do Tom and Kevin have the leverage to sort of demand that title? Would Bob Iger give it to them? I don't. Think Iger's still friendly with Kevin Mayer, at least. I don't know about Stags, but Kevin Mayer and Iger are friendly. But I don't know that Bob Iger is willing to give up his succession vision just to, you know, appease that acquisition. And the other thing about Kevin Mayer to remember, he's still the chairman of DAZN. Like he has- Is he though? Is he really? I mean, he actually does have this other job. So. Wasn't he also consulting for Warner Brothers Discovery? He had his hands in a lot of things after TikTok. But, you know, if he were to really seriously consider going into Disney full-time as a co-CEO, all that stuff would have to be dropped. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that there's a reason why those guys weren't on Iger's list to begin with, why they didn't get the job in the first place. So it would be a little weird if he went back to them. It would be sort of an admission that he was wrong, which I don't think Iger wants to admit. Uh, but then again, the succession issue is not going away. And they've got this board chair at Disney, Mark Parker, whose job it is to find someone to take this job. And if it comes attached to the number one kid's property, maybe that's okay. Maybe that's okay. But, you know, they're not the only game in town. You have companies like Pocket Watch which engaged Lazard as a banker to figure out an exit. They own Ryan's Toys, which is super lucrative, and Kids Diana's show. God, Ryan. That's like the bane of my six-year-old's existence. He is addicted to Ryan. Right? But so that's my point. You know, Coco Melon is the behemoth, but they're not the only play for Disney. So let's go through some of these other companies that are in play right now, because you watch this stuff really closely, and I'm fascinated to see what happens with the WWE. You know, they seem to be making all the right moves and and pushing this towards a sale probably before the middle of the year. Um, I wonder if, who do you see as the potential buyers beyond just Comcast? Um, do you think the Saudis are for real? I don't think that's for real. 
I don't think that's for real. I think Endeavor is a real potential buyer. Obviously, they bought UFC. I think Comcast makes a lot of sense. You know, they brought a lot of subs to Peacock when they signed that five-year deal. And then the other networks are interesting. You know, the WWE media rights expire next year, you know, with Fox as well. Fox could be a buyer. I've always thought Fox would be a good buyer for WWE. It seems that they're... You know, their their fan bases match up a little bit more than some of these other companies. They already have the relationship. I mean, it would be expensive, and I don't know what the Murdoch's um, uh, appetite is for that kind of a, of a deal. But they also have this streaming service, Fox Nation, that, you know, we don't know how well it's doing. They've never revealed how many people subscribe to that. And... Well, I was going to say, I interviewed Lachlan Murdoch last year about that. And I said, what is the total addressable market for Fox Nation? And he said, it's in the low, you know, or in the single digit millions. And I said, well, how do you really monetize it and grow it? And the answer is create fandom around the people who are willing to pay. Give them other services. Give them commerce. Give them more lifestyle content. My pillow, 24 hours a day. All day, every day. But like that's where WWE actually could have a lifestyle fit and it could be an interesting play for them. But I think you're right. WWE is going to move. They're going to move for two reasons. One, they're not really an ads business. They make their money from licensing and from these subscriptions. And, and they they are a touring carnival show. I mean, they make money from their shows around the country. And that's why it's a little different for a media company. Do you really want to be in that business where you're booking these venues and all these things that WWE does, but you can make money on that. And small price to pay for that catalog. That's a massive catalog of content that these companies now building their streaming services would love to get their hands on. Even Fox, I mean, this would be a question that I would have for them. You know, they have Tubi, which is a free ad-supported streaming service. Could they integrate WWE catalog content to bolster that? We'll see. God, you could go to Tubi to watch, you know, wrestling matches from the 80s and 90s. There is an audience for it. There's an oh, I'm, I, I would watch that, I guess. Maybe not. But, you know, relive the youth watching, you know, the, the, the Hulkamaniacs go after Mr. T or something. I'm laughing just seeing how excited you're getting about this. Totally. I think WWE is a big one. You have some of this other low-hanging fruit. You know, there was uh, the whole big thing about Lionsgate spinning out stars. Will that happen finally? I mean, they've been talking about this for literally years now. Lionsgate has been on the market, and then they were going to spin off stars, and they were brought it back, and they were going to try to get the whole company for sale. Then it's a production play. Now it's a streaming play. Well, like, what is Lionsgate? I think they have to spin out stars because the investors have essentially said, we don't see you capturing value for us in any capacity unless you do that. You also have AMC, which isn't a really bad Oh, AMC is another one where this is a company that has lost about 80% of its value over the past few years because it was a television company. They had opportunities to sell. Jim's, Jim Dolan, um, New York supervillain and uh, chairman of AMC, he, you know, when he's not, when he's not, doing facial recognition uh, ploys on his customers at MSG. He is sitting there with this asset that has declined in value and he's refused to sell it. AMC Plus is, they say, doing okay, but not great. The other niche, they have all these other niche um, streaming services like Shudder, which they say are profitable. But AMC's got to find a buyer, right? They have to. And there was a report out this morning, which made the stock pop a little bit, that Roku was interested 18 months ago. I don't know that Roku's in the position right now to buy AMC, but it comes... Yeah, the Roku stock has dropped significantly over the past few months, although they are making ploys about getting more into original content. They hired Charlie Collier 
But they go so small. I mean, they bought this old house. They bought the IP from Quibi. I mean, this is not big strategic acquisitions. AMC would be massive for them. And right now, I think it would be very hard given how they're trading. The ones that I'm excited about, though, going back to what I was saying about Spotter and some of the stuff with Candle, is the YouTube IP. That is, I think, going to be in valuable to a lot of these companies. You look at Mr. Beast, I reported that he is looking to raise $150 million at a $1.5 billion valuation. That is where the real momentum is going to be. These legacy TV companies, like that's not where I see valuable AP anymore. Right. Yeah. Producer Craig gives me shit all the time for not talking about YouTube enough. And I agree with them. I mean, the, the value chain on YouTube content is going to be huge. And worth noting, we're talking about YouTube. People ask me all the time, why aren't you talking about TikTok? And the answer is, TikTok doesn't have the creator monetization strategy that YouTube has that has allowed and empowered these creators to make money to make their content better. I mean, Mr. Beast pours millions of dollars into these videos because he makes it on YouTube. Right now, TikTok, from an IP perspective, these stars, they hawk some, you know, influencer products, but they're not building these massive kinds of brands in the same way. And that's why I think YouTube is going to continue to be the IP, like, powerhouse for acquisitions moving forward. Not Twitter. Elon's talking about sharing revenue with creators to lure them over. Uh, not not going to happen? Not going to happen. We saw all of those leaks coming out. We were being leaked all of this stuff. Oh, they're going to create, you know, Zoom-like video stuff. You can upload long videos, short video. The problem is actually not the ideas. It's execution. And right now they're trying to do way too many things at once and they're not doing anything super well. But I will say, I'm not a real bear on Elon and Twitter. Everyone said that Twitter was going to collapse when Elon bought it. I don't know about you. I still use Twitter every day. It's not collapsed for me. It's a worse product, though. It's There's so much garbage on it now. I have a very fun story that I'm going to publish later today that shows that the way they're thinking about content moderation quality, advertising quality, it is such a reflection of Elon's brain. Like the things that he wants to put in the feed are going to go in the feed. And so when you and I are like, oh, it's so much garbage, in his mind, this is how the product should look and feel. Yeah, but that's dangerous. I mean, I, I assume he's seeing data that show that shows that it's turning people off. It's a short-term and a long-term game. In the short-term, we're all tuning in in some ways to watch the train possibly crash, possibly not, and also because we don't have good alternatives. But you're right, in the long-term, if Twitter doesn't have broad user trust, if it can't get misinformation right and content moderation right, then are you going to use it during a major world event to share your thoughts during the World Cup, during a war? Maybe not. And that's the long-term risk to Elon Musk owning this thing and thinking that free speech is something that means nothing needs to be regulated. But in the short term, Matt, I got to say, Elon Musk's takeover hasn't killed Twitter. <laughs> like, we're all still on it even more probably than before. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. 
Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. In the content space, in the film and television space, um, what do you see the the deal makers talking about? Like, what what would they like to see happen over the next twelve months? Do they want Disney to get rid of Hulu or Disney to buy out Comcast share? Do they want um, you know the IPO market to return? Obviously, they do want the IPO market to come back, um, but. But what do they see realistically happening? Well, realistically, you have a few players that have to consolidate. So we know that's Warner Brothers Discovery, mm-hmm. likely NBCU, mm-hmm. Paramount. So we know that's going to happen. And the puzzle piece is which ones of these players merge with who. Obviously, two broadcasters can't merge. So that would make Well, it- unless they change the rules, which they could. There's no way. There's no way. This Biden administration is so aggressive in their approach to antitrust. And just to give you a sense of that, they came out and said, we will not allow mergers to go through with concessions, meaning, oh, you can merge, but don't do this. We're just going to sue to block. If that was the mentality a few years ago, Comcast would not have been able to merge with NBC. Disney and Fox would not have had their deal go through. Remember? And don't even get me started about Live Nation and Ticketmaster. That's another great one. I mean, they've got a consent decree. I don't want to get into all the legal stuff. That's Eric Gardner's world. But that expires in five years. And I don't know that this administration feels very good about, you know, maintaining it and letting that deal go through. So I think the regulatory environment is going to make this a lot harder. The one that we're all watching really closely is Microsoft Activision. If that gets sued, that's going to make a lot of hurdles for a lot of these big companies. But if it doesn't, Definitely expect action on those three big main companies that I just mentioned to you, the Warner Brothers and the NBCs and the Paramounts of the world. Um, the podcast space. Is it over? I know we, this, is coming, this is coming at you on a Spotify-owned podcast uh, from The Ringer, but is that boom and all the big deals and smart lists selling for $80 million and Joe Rogan and Call Her Daddy, all that stuff, is that boom over? It's not as strong as it was. I don't know when it will get back to that. The boom isn't over, though, for podcasts in the sense that the ad market, even though it's weak broadly, is still booming for podcasts, partially because it's just so immature. Yeah, it's still growing. I mean, we we are all on podcasts all the time, but more people discover podcasts every day, and it is still a growing medium. Yes. I think the challenge, though, in these big deals is you can't invest in an exclusive if you don't know how big the audience is could be or has the potential to be. This is where I think Spotify learned. When it came to acquiring Bill Simmons, we know that's a massive engaged audience. Joe Rogan, come on, most popular podcaster in the world. But some of these exclusives that they inked, think about Meghan Markle, were with creators they'd never worked with, where they didn't know how popular or how big the audience was going to be. I think you can't afford to take that kind of risk anymore. No, we're already seeing walkbacks on that stuff. I mean, the fact that, that uh, you know, the, these big stars, like everyone in Hollywood thought they were going to get some massive po- podcast deal to either, you know, just sit around their house and talk and be interesting or to produce stuff. And I think that is where you're seeing the correction. You're not getting those deals anymore. No, you're definitely not. And also, it's not just Spotify. I haven't heard a peep really from Amazon lately on some of these investments. Well, the Obamas went there. The Obamas went there, but otherwise they're not making these massive splashes like they were when they acquired Wondery for $300 million. I think the the correction for podcasting, in some ways, we talked about this today at the conference, you're going to see a correction in all sorts of mediums where we overspent and overinvested. Look at newsletters. Substack, 
Raising. Hey, how dare you? I have a newsletter. You do, and it's the best in the business. I read you and Dylan like religiously. Every- <laughs> Yours is pretty good too. But I think the problem is we put a lot of money into these companies at crazy valuations. I mean, was Substack worth $600 million? Was Substack worth more than Axios? I would contend not. But that's because there was so much promise in these mediums. And now I think we're starting to see that we maybe overplayed our hands there. All right. Well, Sarah Fisher, love your insights. We got to have you back. We should make this a regular thing, like deal, deal, like deal corner or deal moment. Deal corner in the corner of a random hotel conference room. Deal. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. We are back with the call sheet. Craig, are you excited for Ant Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania? <laughs> I just had to look that up. I love the names. They're just going to keep getting crazier with the names. Yeah. I, I, I'm calling it Ant-Man 3. I, yeah. I don't care what the... I can get a nasty email from a Disney publicist. That's fine. Uh, the reviews, not great. Not great reviews for this one. It's about 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. Does it matter? Does it matter? That's the question. You know what? It, it doesn't matter, but it kind of does. I know, and it's weird to say that because Marvel has skirted by on pretty good reviews throughout its history. And that's been part of the secret sauce here is that it's, yeah, they're big popcorn movies for fans, but they've also been considered decent movies along the way. And we're entering this period, and we've talked about it on the show before, where Marvel's, you know, not quite the machine it once was in terms of quality, at least. The fans have kind of noticed over the past year or two. Well, Black Panther was a big hit, reviewed well. It was, yeah, but Doctor Strange 2, Thor, yeah, a lot, some, some grumbling about that. And, uh, you know, listen, I, I am certainly not going to declare Marvel uh, creatively moribund here. Remember, um, Guardians <laughs> 3 is going to come out and take over the world probably for a few months. Totally, totally. But uh, my prediction is that, you know, the tracking for this is about 115-ish for the f- the three-day weekend, the four-night weekend. Uh, I'm going to take the under on this one. I just feel like wow. Ant-Man, it's, Ant-Man has not been the A-level Marvel property um, from the beginning. It was always kind of a lesser Marvel property. It was the late August premiere for the first one. And then the second one did better, but these are not billion dollar grocers. This was, you know, the second one I think got into the 700s. Uh, I just think that this one is not going to get there based on the quality. And there's a little bit of fatigue there. They are introducing this new villain Kang, which even in the bad reviews of the movie, people say that Jonathan Majors is pretty good. And this is going to be a storyline going forward. So it, it does give people a reason to show up even if they are not interested in Ant-Man per se, but I still don't think it's going to get to 115 for the weekend. I think what's most interesting is how Marvel is going to make this transition between all of the original superstars, all of the, the, the Robert Denny Jr., the Chris Pratt, Chris Evans, all of them making the move to whatever this next phase is, whether or not that's going to stick. I think that is, is an underrated aspect of, of Marvel. And I personally, they're going to have to, to really nail it multiple times to create a whole new iteration of megastars and superheroes for the next 10, 15 years. And I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's very difficult to, to catch lightning in a bottle again. Uh, I don't know, though. I mean, they still have another Guardians. They, they're going to sprinkle in But some that's of part these... of phase one, Guardians. I know, but they're going to still sprinkle in 
these movies. And they're going to try to leverage them and, and create new people, and we'll see how they do it. But, you know, we'll know that they are scared if they do a, you know, major deal to bring back Downey or Scarlett Johansson or one of these original Avengers. Um, we'll see. Now, Kevin Feige says they've got a Spider-Man 4 plan set in motion. Yeah. So that'll be big when that comes out as well. We're going to have a bunch of 58-year-old superheroes running around in 10 years? Are you kidding me? Why not? Tom Cruise can do it. Listen, man, de-aging works miracles. No one, no one is who they are. It's just who they seem to be. Is that a superhero mantra? I don't know. All right. That is the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Sarah Fisher. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you next week. 